Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, friends. I'm saying in my finest Jim Nance voice on this Masters Thursday. Hello, friends. Welcome to oh, Pro Se. Great. Love that. <laughs> and Haley Kanath. I have no Jim Nance voice for you, but great, oh, okay. great to be here with both of you. We got a humdinger today um, because, as I'm sure everyone knows, uh, a mere mere minutes after our recording last week, they went ahead, uh, the Manhattan DA went ahead and, uh, well, they didn't actually release their indictment, but there was a sealed indictment of former President Donald Trump that is now unsealed and uh, a not guilty plea has been entered by the former president. And we are going to unfurl all of that with Frank Runyon later on in the show. So uh, stick around for that. Frank's been all over that case, uh, like he always is covering that court. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, it's a great chat with Frank because he was actually in court to see that happen, can kind of give us both the color of what it was like to be there for that historic moment, but also does a really nice job breaking down for us some of the statistics even around how these types of indictments usually play out in New York court. And we do, before we even get to the meat of the show here, we do have a couple of things to clean up. There have been stories always move fast and we have sort of an internal joke about, I say, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that. We'll keep an eye on that one. We're holding to our word here. We have some updates for you. Haley, you want to go first? Yeah. Speaking of major news dropping very shortly after we conclude recording, we also <laughs> got a conclusion to the Gwyneth Paltrow ski hit and run trial. Um, she has been cleared. The jury sided with her. She was not found liable for causing that retired optometrist's injuries on that fateful, fateful day. <laughs> that is very dramatic and well handled, I think. I also wanted to give an update on a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This is about the former Littler Mendelssohn attorney who's been sued by the firm for stealing what they say are thousands of confidential documents relating to the firm itself and its clients. They had asked for an injunction in Texas state court, and they actually got it. That was last week, basically saying that this attorney, her name is Uliana Kozichuk, has to allow a forensic professionals to remove confidential information from her personal Dropbox account. Kozichuk has also, in a subsequent filing, made a motion to dismiss that case entirely from the firm. So still more to go there, but I did think that that was interesting uh, to keep on top of. Yeah, I'm glad we've sort of done a little housekeeping here. There's so much stuff going on. But now I want to turn to sort of the meat of today's show. And Haley, I'm going to toss it back to you. Again, another one that has been percolating for a while and we're moving forward. Another big update. So many updates. This is the episode of updates. A few <laughs> weeks ago, we talked about Dominion Voting Systems' billion-dollar defamation suit against Fox News and all of those bombshell revelations that emerged in discovery. Well, last week, late last week, we got that summary judgment decision that we've been waiting on, and it was a bit of a mixed bag. The Delaware judge granted summary judgment to Dominion on its claims that Fox News made false statements, but he did not find that those statements were made with actual malice. This, of course, means that we are on track for a trial later this month on some remaining claims. And for anyone who missed our recap, this case, of course, centers on Fox News, all the reporting that was done in the wake of the 2020 presidential election, 
And Dominion is alleging that the network and its hosts made false claims that it was involved in rigging the election. Um, and those false claims allegedly crushed Dominion's business. Check out episode 290 for the full rundown. Definitely appreciate that. Let's get into exactly what they ruled. We all hate a split order. We want to figure out who in the world actually won this thing. But the distinctions are actually very important, which you kind of alluded to. What did the judge rule? Judge Eric Davis said the evidence shows that it is, quote, crystal clear that none of the statements singled out by Dominion are true. Therefore, he granted summary judgment in favor of Dominion on the element of falsity. Judge Davis also found that the statements were defamation per se, rejecting Fox's arguments that Dominion isn't entitled to punitive damages. Here's a quote from the judge. Dominion contends that the statements strike at the basic integrity of its business. That alone makes the statements defamatory per se. The statements also seem to charge Dominion with the serious crime of election fraud. Accusations of criminal activity even in the form of opinion, are not constitutionally protected. So a few things are left for the jury to decide here. Those are whether Fox is liable for statements made by its hosts and guests, whether Fox acted with actual malice, and whether Dominion incurred any damages. And what are both sides saying about this decision, Haley? Dominion has maybe unsurprisingly painted this as a pretty big win it said the court soundly rejected all of Fox's arguments and defenses, and it's looking forward to trial. Meanwhile, Fox is still uh, singing the same old tune. It's been singing this whole case. It says this is a First Amendment issue, and it will, quote, continue to fiercely advocate for the rights of free speech and a free press. Well, this is pushing toward some additional things needing to be resolved at trial. So what are we going to be watching for at that point? Yeah, one big thing to look for here, Judge Davis actually said earlier this week that Dominion absolutely can force Fox execs Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch to testify at the trial. There were some questions as to whether he was going to allow that because they're not technically parties to the case. And Fox, of course, has been opposing putting them on the stand. But the judge just said, hey, sure, go for it. It's clearly relevant. I'm not going to stop you if you want to do that. Judge Davis also warned everyone to stay away from the January 6th insurrection at trial. That was Love also that. earlier this week. Yeah. Don't pay attention to that stuff over there. That's not what we're doing here. Yeah. He's I know like, how you all love to talk <laughs> about this. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, he, he commented, I know that probably shocks everyone. But he said, <laughs> basically, he just doesn't see how it's relevant. Because this case centers on allegations of defamation that happened in November and December of 2020, which obviously was before January 6th. Not January, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm drawing a like, line. I'm the stay judge. On track. I, so let's got stay enough, on track. <laughs> we've got enough to derail us here. Yeah. So the trial is set to kick off April 17th. It's expected to last up to six weeks. So could be a long one. Mark your calendars. I sure have my calendar marked. Uh, it's going to be a good one. So I want to keep us guys in the realm of election stories. That's our little through line for today's episode. Yeah, definitely. I have an interesting conviction to discuss with everybody. Late last week, a New York federal jury convicted a right-wing Twitter influencer of scheming to interfere with the 2016 election. I frankly find it difficult to keep election interference allegations and cases 
straighten my head. A lot of talk about election interference, but both political parties, I would say. Actual, like, active litigation is rare, and even rarer still are convictions on stuff relating to that. So what are the particulars? What do we need to know? This one is about a man named Douglas Mackey. He's 33 years old from Florida. Online, he goes by the name Ricky Vaughn. So I'm going to use his actual given name. So according to prosecutors, Mackey orchestrated a Twitter misinformation campaign to support former President Trump. The campaign suggested that Hillary Clinton voters could, quote, avoid the line and vote from home by sending a text. <laughs> oh, so, no. And despite being suspended by Twitter for participating in what they refer to as targeted abuse, Mackey then created a new account days later and worked with dozens of associates to spread this false vote by text information. He also spread a meme that claimed Clinton would provoke conflict with foreign nations and would want to draft women to fight in the ensuing wars. <laughs> These are such specific tactics. They really are. So among <laughs> the other attempts to send voters on basically a wild goose chase, Mackey sent a message with what prosecutors described as a deceptive image that seemed to target black voters, who everyone probably knows this, they overwhelmingly voted against Trump. That meme, that sort of thing that was being sent around, suggested that they could avoid the line, vote from home by sending a text message. So that was the core thing that was being pushed by Mackey. And it was, in some ways, there's some statistics here that are pretty shocking to me. Approximately 4,900 unique phone numbers texted the number listed by Mackey in the avoid the line tweet. And, you know, that's no small amount. Mackey's conduct was amplified by others, and one associate who allegedly participated in this disinformation campaign has since become a cooperator and testified against Mackey anonymously. I bring this up only because I would like to tell you guys the pseudonym being used by this person, Microchip. Yeah, Microchip flipping on his buddy Ricky Vaughn, a tale as old as the country itself, really. <laughs> That's pretty nefarious, as alleged, and there was, a, as we say, a conviction here. What is the actual, like, charge that the jury was considering here? I'm glad you asked that, because we do hear about all sorts of misinformation on the internet, and it is yeah. uh, murky about what crosses a legal line. So the jury found Mackie guilty of a sole count, conspiracy against rights. It did take the jury 35 hours of deliberations to get there, and they overcame not one, but two deadlocks that were reported to the judge. This was no small thing to get this conviction. A U.S. attorney who brought the charges had this to say about the verdict. Today's verdict proves that the defendant's fraudulent actions crossed a line into criminality and flatly rejects his cynical attempt to use the constitutional right of free speech as a shield for his scheme to subvert the ballot box and suppress the vote. So, meanwhile, Mackey's attorney has said they're going to appeal and that they think they have a number of grounds that are very strong. And I wanted to tell this story mostly because as we head toward a brand new election cycle, there's probably going to be many more instances of possible misinformation. And I think it's very interesting about how this case is turning out and what may happen on appeal about just where that line is between discourse on the Internet and actual criminal activity. The historic prosecution of Donald Trump is off and running, 
with the former president pleading not guilty to a rash of charges stemming from an alleged hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. The case is intricate, tying New York bookkeeping and tax crimes to potential violations of federal election law. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's decision to charge Trump has predictably ignited a political firestorm, with Trump railing against the case as a witch hunt. Law 360 New York Courts reporter Frank Runyon has been camped outside the courthouse downtown and was in the room when Trump entered his plea, and now he joins Pro Se to walk us through this unprecedented case and where we go from here. Welcome back to the show, Frank. Thanks for having me. You are the man of the hour in the Law 3... Well, I guess Trump is the man of the hour, but at least uh, in the Law 360 newsroom, it's definitely you. Before we get to kind of some of your... uh, the scenes you've seen play out in court there, I want to get down to the particulars of this indictment. Everyone was waiting for it. They very rudely dropped it about a half hour after Pro Se's recording session wrapped last week, but here we are this week. It's a 34-count indictment. We don't need to enumerate them all, but can you just explain what is being alleged here and what is the sort of chief legal thesis that underpins these charges? Right. Well, I guess the easiest way for me to explain this is backwards. Because from a legal perspective, it's falsification of business records, generally a misdemeanor. If you do that in furtherance of another crime, then it becomes a felony. Okay, but to tell the story, you basically have to flip it on its head. So what the allegation is, is that Donald Trump conspired with other people to benefit his 2016 election campaign by making hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the campaign. And in the process of doing that, either uh, changed the business records himself or uh, directed others to make uh, false entries into his uh, business and to characterize them as legal expenses when he reimbursed his longtime attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, for that expense you know, with a little bit on top. And, you know, the other element that that's in here that we didn't necessarily know until uh, we were reading it in the indictment was that there's also a a tax fraud element of this that's being alleged. So uh, while legal expenses are uh, tax deductible, hush money payments to adult film actresses apparently are not generally. Um, as far as I know, I haven't talked to the IRS about that one, but (laughs) that is, you know, at a high level, what we're talking about. And each and every one of these 34 different counts are different pieces of paper that are supposedly false entries that Trump himself is charged with making. It's really interesting that, you know, we've got 34 counts here and there's some interplay about federal criminality and what's gone on at the state level. This is at the state level. Can you maybe talk just a beat about that before we get into some stats about how we think this might turn out? Right. Well, one of the unique parts about covering the grand jury proceedings before uh, Donald Trump was indicted was that we were covering grand jury proceedings before Donald Trump was indicted. Yeah. You know, these are secret. Generally, nobody usually knows uh, that they're going on. Obviously, this is a high profile case, but there is more to that backstory. Michael Cohen was charged for his part in this same scheme years ago in the Southern District. And so these facts are very well known and have been for years. So we have the benefit of that entire backstory and what he was charged with, you know, relevant to to this case here. 
was violating federal election law by making campaign contributions in the form of hush money payments that were more than you're allowed to. And so that is one crime that uh, Bragg is saying that we can reference um, is that federal crime. But also there is a state crime in New York that you cannot make such payments and um, blow past what is uh, allowed in terms of uh, just the amount of money you're allowed to spend and make an in-kind campaign contribution in the form of a hush money payment. You've really explained very well how these facts fit together into a legal theory that underlies the charges. And obviously, there's been a lot of punditry, a lot of analysis about how strong or how weak the indictment might actually be. I'm not here to ask you about that, but you do cover this court and this district in Manhattan very closely. And I know you've done some reporting about really just like a statistical analysis of where these indictments from grand juries tend to go. What have you found? Right. Well, it's, it's essentially an exercise in context. Um, and that is that when the Manhattan district attorney brings a case to a grand jury, just purely by the numbers, more than 99% of the time, looking at you know, the most recent five years that I could get, the grand jury votes to indict. And beyond that, uh, looking at the cases where uh, a defendant has been indicted, 80% of those end with uh, a conviction of some sort. Now, that's usually, that's usually a plea, but you know, it gives you an idea of, of the trajectory of these cases. And, you know, from the experts that I've been speaking with, people are in the district attorney's office and defense attorneys, you know, even, you know, sort of folks that represent indigent defendants say there's nothing nefarious about this, but there is a process and the district attorney generally controls a lot of that process. And, um, you know, from the very start, he doesn't have to bring a case. He has discretion. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what I was told is essentially before they show a case to the grand jury, they want proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a far higher standard than you need in the grand jury. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's not particularly surprising that 99 times out of 100, and it's more than that, actually, you will get an indictment. And, you know, moving forward with a case, if you're able to show a defendant, look, we have all this evidence, then, you know, it's not terribly surprising. You get a lot of uh, guilty pleas out of that as well. So, um, yeah, and that's just sort of background in a situation that is completely unprecedented. You've got somebody that is about as famous as you can be, Donald Trump, who's the former president of the United States. We've never had a president of the United States been charged with a crime under indictment. Um, And so we're in new territory. But as we look at that completely unprecedented situation, here's how things typically go. It's intuitive when you think about it. I mean, to your point, the DA is generally trying to bring winning cases. They're not lobbing Hail Marys up and just hoping to get indictments, hoping to get convictions, they, they are incentivized to build strong cases. So it does make sense. Obviously, you kind of have alluded to the unprecedented context of this entire proceeding, and it's been a scene down there, and frankly, up at Trump Tower as well. You have, as I understand it, you were like camped outside the court at one point, you and, you and Rachel Scharf, uh, one of our other court reporters, and you were also in the room when Trump entered the plea I kind of want to just give you some space here to paint a picture with words for us. You know, we all saw various snippets on the news and all that, but you were on the scene. What was it looking like? Well, let's just say that it, it's very different than it normally looks. Let's start <laughs> yeah. there. Um, 
The criminal court um, in downtown Manhattan is not the most pretty place uh, in town. It's frequently relatively quiet. A lot of court officers, you know, milling around the hallways and the courtrooms are generally empty during proceedings. And this was the exact opposite experience. The courthouse was shut down by Secret Service ahead of the arraignment, uh, more or less. So let me just let me just back up. 24 hours before the arraignment even happened, I caught word that people were starting to line up to get inside. Wow. Which basically caused, uh, you know, a mini stampede within the, the press corps for us all to run down the street and, and get in line here, which is just complete madness because normally you can just walk into a courtroom sure. as it's happening, sit down, and you're not going to fight anybody for seats. So, you know, this was uh, a whole other reality. And so we started a list, uh, which really became a, a social contract. It ballooned to over 100 people long. And uh, that's what kept the peace and allowed people to go to the bathroom, get a cup of coffee. Um, you know, <laughs> An be honor a hu- code. An honor be code. A, yeah. Be a human in the 24 hours um, leading up to that event. So, you know, eventually when we got there, there were throngs of people. Uh, there was there was public. There's photographers. There was press, and there were a lot of onlookers. There were some protesters, uh, very noisy. Obviously, a couple Congress people uh, showed up: Marjorie Taylor Greene, George Santos, uh, for a brief time. But the media presence was overwhelming, and just getting into the courtroom was was a bit of a chore. So um, we were ushered upstairs. Secret Service and court officers were really filling the courtroom, more than two dozen court officers, maybe half a dozen Secret Service agents really sort of lined up, blocking both sides of the aisle of the courtroom. And after the prosecutors came in, the defense attorneys came in, and then there was a pause, and in walked Donald Trump. Did they play hail to the chief, Frank? Just tell me. You know, I made that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, now I feel like a hack. (laughs) <laughs> While we were nervously waiting in the courtroom, I said, guys, what if? What if? But no, it was, yeah, it was definitely surreal um, yeah. to have him walk in. And, you know, having been an avid reader of his social media uh, posts and at least this last couple weeks by necessity, it was remarkable to see him walk in so subdued, yeah, really glowering and, you know, with plodding footsteps kind of from side to side, slowly moving down towards the defense table, you know, this was not a man that you would have described as being proud or defiant. This was a man that, that did not want to be there. So it was remarkable. I was also happy that you, at least from what I could tell, you didn't fall for any of the uh, Trump body doubles that were circulating both Trump Tower and the courthouse. So you're, you're a reporter of great integrity. I just wanted to uh, give you props there. Well, it also helps when there is an information blackout and they don't let you use any electronics. Yeah, good call. <laughs> Save you from yourself, maybe. I mean, it is very interesting to hear this scene setting because this is a historic moment to have seen him actually at that arraignment. But we are at a stage now where all the reporting has really focused on how we're not going to be back in that courtroom until December. And that feels like it's, Frank, so far away. So... What are you watching between now and then? What's going to be the action that we're maybe following more closely than people who only want to see these big moments when Donald Trump is in a courtroom? Well, I mean, I, you know, obviously 
as I'm sure many of our listeners will understand, this is the point at which Donald Trump and his team are going to try and get this thrown out for various reasons. And they, they do have until uh, December to prepare all those motions, but I'm sure they're going to be pretty robust. In the meantime, a significant part of the arraignment hearing was devoted to a discussion of what Donald Trump had been saying on social media. That's unusual for prosecutors to bring that up and have the judge address it so directly, you know, at that, you know, early stage in the proceedings here. Um, But the judge basically warned him and, uh, you know, equally addressing uh, verbose um, or rather talkative witnesses on the uh, on the prosecution side, you know, warning them not to make any threats and not to, you know, don't do anything that would lead people to break the law. And, you know, to essentially incite violence. And, you know, it's a very clear message to the former president. And here we are a couple of days later, and we're seeing, you know, reports that the, uh, the judge has received threats in his courtroom. And even um, the, the president's sons apparently have been uh, sharing, you know, photos of, of the judge's daughter. So you could easily see a situation in which the prosecutors are going to call for a hearing to maybe get some kind of further relief to to stop this behavior. And that would be incredibly fraught um, with all kinds of legal questions because we're talking about a candidate for the presidency of the United States in this ongoing election season. So, you know, people have been talking about the potential for a gag order. And the judge said at that point, um, sort of addressing the elephant in the room, you know, I'm not handing down a gag order. And, you know, that would be an extremely serious thing to do to a presidential candidate. But stop it. That's going to be very interesting to watch, Frank, because there is such a tension there, right? I mean, there's, you know, the rights of free speech and a candidate out there trying to campaign. But when does it go too far? And judges and other family members of political figures have been attacked. I mean, we've seen lots of actual real world violence out there. So those are some hefty issues to have to weigh out even while we wait on further merits action on this case. Right. And I I mean, I don't think we'll be waiting too long. I don't want to predict the future here, but, uh, you know, which is completely fraught because trying to predict what Donald Trump is going to do. I got out of that business a long time ago. Right. (laughs) Or what um, a judge is going to do in a given case is, is, uh, you know, typically a losing proposition. But just the nature of this case, how closely watched it is, and how high stakes it is, I'm sure we're going to continue to see news between now and December. It's a historic moment. And uh, frankly, we are uh, in great hands uh, with you on the beat here, Frank. So I know it's a crazy busy time for you. And we, we greatly appreciate you coming on Pro Se to break it down for us. Thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. Take care. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we have an awesome one to talk about today involving a rapper who is a real nostalgia trip for me. I'm sure for you too as well, Amber. And just take it away from there because I want to get right into this. I'm so excited. So I had a friend bring this story to my attention, and once I dived into the details, I knew we had to talk about it on the show. 
So really happy to get those kinds of tips out there in the world, especially when it's about Afro Man. Alex, Mm -hmm. you just said it was a nostalgia trip. Haley, do you remember Afro Man? Oh, yes. Okay, great. For any of the listeners who don't, best known for his 2000s hit, Because I Got High, I think that'll make a lot of people click into who this is, he's been sued by a group of Ohio police officers who executed a warrant on his home. Those officers are alleging that in the aftermath of the raid, Afroman violated their privacy by using video footage of the raid in various online posts and some songs. This is awesome. I mean, just in all of its, I mean, obviously the police using force to raid your home is a serious thing, but the way that this is kind of spooled into a whole other saga is endlessly fascinating to me. And let's start with this raid itself. What were they doing there? What were they after? Seven officers executed a search warrant on Afferman's home in Ohio on suspicion of drug trafficking and kidnapping. He himself has even made some jokes about how drug trafficking would make more sense given his, you know, song history. Well, he has a song <laughs> called Because I Got High. Right. So, But the rapper, whose real name is Joseph Foreman, he wasn't home during the raid, but his ex-wife lives nearby, saw the police were there, so she rushed over, had their kids, their kids with her, uh, started filming parts of the raid on her cell phone. And also, the home is equipped with a lot of home security cameras, so that also captured a bunch of footage of the officers in action. In the following days, Afferman posted footage from the incident on his Instagram page and a bunch of other social media channels. The search, I want to point out, did not uncover any criminal evidence and no charges were filed. Okay, that was my big question. What did they find? So, they found nothing. How did we get to this lawsuit? Okay, so Afferman was pissed but pretty creatively inspired by the whole ordeal. And the social media posts started coming. A real artist. Yeah, just pouring out of him these posts. They were on Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, everywhere he could put them, he did. The deputies claim that Afro-Man has embarrassed and humiliated them with videos and posts that mocked them individually, <clears throat> including one that compared an officer to the father from Family Guy and also nicknamed him Lemon Pound Cake. The deputies from the Adams County Sheriff's Office said Foreman violated Ohio privacy law by using their personas without permission and also presented them in a false light and gave unreasonable publicity to their private lives and also profited from all of these images that he was sharing. I, first of all, I didn't even know he was still making music. So that was, it's always nice to have a reminder that people like that are still uh, giving us these lyrical treasures. I'm a huge, I was a huge Afroman fan back in the day. But I want to go back to something you said. Did you say you nicknamed one of the cops Lemon Pound Cake? Why, yes, Alex, I did. And thank you so much for keying in on the entire reason I'm talking about the story. One clip captured during the raid shows an officer appearing to basically do a double take at a lemon pound cake <laughs> on Afferman's kitchen counter. Yeah. So Afferman started posting about that little detail, first with social media posts, and then he recorded a song called Lemon Pound Cake that talks about the incident, compares the sheriff to Peter Griffin, and generally makes fun of him. The video, which you can watch on YouTube, the song video, it shows the sheriff roaming around the kitchen, his gun is fully drawn, and then he's looking at that cake. They found no kidnapping victims, just some lemon pound cake. Mama's lemon pound cake. It tastes so nice. Sheriff wanna put down his gun and cut him a slice. A 
I watched this entire video before our recording. And what a true joy. I the know. crowd sings along. Like he has, he's been like performing this before live audiences. And I didn't know lemon pound cake as a phrase would also be so catchy. So there's that. It is. It's a banger. So, you know, Afterman's gone hard on the trolling of these sheriffs. So he has used their actual, as that lemon pound cake video shows, has used their actual names and images all across the social media platforms. He's also written other songs, too, about the cops' behavior here. So that's just one example, probably the one most people have heard of so far. But there's a few others, too. He's even made T-shirts with their photos and nicknames he's given them on the shirts, and he's selling them on his website. So other than the moniker Lemon Pound Cake, I would also like to inform you, he's named one of them Quasimodo. Very literary. Mm -hmm. He also has a cruder nickname for one of the female deputies that's related to Mona Lisa. And the trolling is just pretty intense here. He's really going hard at this. Uh, I do want to say, regardless of the fact that he was there executing a raid that ultimately turned up no evidence of criminal wrongdoing or anything like that, on a sort of mammalian instinctual level, I mean, lemon pound cake is one of the tastiest desserts you can have. Delicious. And I'd certainly give it a glance if I was just, if I just saw it out on the table. So that's just my own little offering. It's a fair aside, Alex, because even in the song, Afro Man does talk about like, how it's tasty and was, I think he says it's his mama's. So sure, sounds right. That made the pound cake. So yeah, of course, looks delicious. What sort of redress are the deputies looking for here? Clearly they're embarrassed. Clearly they've been called names. Uh, what is the, the remedy? Well, they're asking for what you would imagine they would want. They want Afroman to permanently and immediately take down the videos, the photos, and also, of course, stop selling that merch with their images on it. They've also asked for more than $100,000 in damages and some other unspecified amounts of punitive damages on top of that. Afromam doesn't seem to be backing down in any way here. He is pledging to countersue for the unlawful raid, for money he says was stolen during the raid, for damage to a list of his relationships from the fallout of this, including what he refers to as his clients, his family, his career, physical property damage. So he's vowing to countersue. But he also said this, which I thought was quite telling about where we find ourselves in culture these days. This is a quote from Afferman. When they kicked the door in, money kicked the door in. Material kicked the door in. I didn't have anything to write about. When they kicked down that door, they gave me relevant, interesting material. I was like a carpenter with no wood. They brought the wood. They brought the wood. Well said, Afferman. <laughs> I did, uh, and I mean, beautiful. All joking aside, I mean, it is kind of interesting, I and mean, I don't know if it'll really get traction. It's kind of some interesting legal theory at play, which I don't really want to speculate on. I did just want to offer one more anecdote before we get out of here. One of the first times I ever got in trouble, like really in trouble for like listening to like vulgar music, was my mom overheard me playing the Afro Man song "Crazy Rap," better known as Colt Forty Five and Two Zigzags, and I will not. <laughs> I, and she was really, nice. she was really mad. I was in high school and she was like, what is that? And I didn't grow up in a, like, they weren't like really religious or anything like that. And I, I watched a lot of rated R movies and stuff and they weren't like really protective of it, but this really set her off. And I am not going to repeat any of those lyrics on this show, but if you look them yeah, up, keep you'll it PG, uh, Alex. Yeah. Well, if you look them up, you'll probably understand where she was coming from. But I, but, I, but I just wanted to share that anecdote. That's what I bring to the table in this discussion. You know, we all have some some memories of Afferman, and this may give a whole new generation songs of his to enjoy. So That's a good point. Something to keep an eye on here about how that all shakes out. But thank you so much for letting me indulge in explaining that story to you guys today. Thank you. No, thank you. Truly. <laughs> 
We also have a bunch of other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Frank Runyon, and our contributing reporters, Cara Salvatore, Tracy Reed, Jeff Montgomery, Leslie Pappas, Stuart Bishop, Rachel Scharf, and Travis Bland. And also, just a general shout out to the Law 360 newsroom that's been covering all of the action around this Trump indictment very closely. So we may have missed a few names here, but our coverage is really robust. If you're interested, you should definitely check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. We also want to thank our music providers for the show. That's Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se and anything you've heard today, please leave us a five-star and written review that really helps other people find our show. Thanks and see you again next week.